Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome MJ Fiev, who is, has been an author since she was 16 years old. I think she got first published at 19. Uh, her passion, I mean, she you can tell when she talks, she loves people and she cares for people deeply. Um, her passion has uh, come out in this book series, Badass Black Girl, which is awesome. I know that uh, it's written specifically uh, for black girls. Um, and there's some quotes that I've read that this needs to be in the, this book needs to be in the hands of every black American teenager uh, girl. I would say the way the book is written, the way it's formatted, the content in it, I think is interesting for all of us. And it's, as she says, it's more of a, I don't know if I have the right words. It doesn't read like a book. It's a quick read. You can just read a quick couple of pages and get some insights for it. So I just think uh, her, her first book, Badass Black Girl, is incredibly interesting. She has a couple of new books coming out, uh, one for Black teenage boys, but also um, for other leaders in general. And I, I just, I mean, her content is really deep, really thoughtful, focused on... Um, empowering individuals to work on their own self-thoughts uh, and the negative self-thoughts that we, we can have, as well as how do we turn around, not just from having more positive thoughts, but lead that into action to positively building our community. This is a great interview. Her passion, one of the passions MJ has is uh, helping people cope with trauma through writing. And I shared uh, my challenge with writing and she, gave me a, a bit of insight of that was game changing for me. One of the things I struggle with as a writer is a, perf I have a perfectionist um, mind. So I, it takes me about an hour to write a sentence sometimes. And so she helped me think about a strategy of how to divide that up to where you just write and then you edit. Um, there's just lots of really good nuggets in this conversation. Again, she is uh, someone who has a huge heart for people serving, loving, and empowering folks. And so it's a great conversation. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing if you already have. If you haven't, please hit the subscribe button. We appreciate all the support you give us and uh, this conversation. I hope you enjoy as much as I did because I really enjoyed talking to her. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy this conversation. MJ, thank you for making time to be with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's exciting. I'm, I am very excited. I, uh, we didn't talk about this uh, in the pre-show, but um, I started teaching in St. Louis, Missouri, where our school, I'm pretty sure, was 100% um, African-American students. And uh, your work is something that I think would have changed their lives at that time. That was years and years ago. And so I'm just, I'm really excited to have myself, but also the people listening, learn about who you are, learn about this amazing work that you have that's serving so many great kids and communities right now, um, and figure out how we can do more of that across the world. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation because I, it's so valuable to be able to talk about change that we can bring to the world. Absolutely. So with that, uh, who are you and what do you love about what you do? I would describe myself primarily as a writer because I spend most of my day writing, but I'm also an editor. And I think one thing that have always attracted me to writing is the fact that 
even when you're the one holding the pen, it's opening other worlds to you because it forces you to walk in other people's shoes. And it also forces you to look at some of the inner worlds that you don't get to explore during the day. Uh, you get to see what's beautiful about yourself, but also what's really ugly and might, and might require some fixing. Yeah, that that's inspiring to hear. I, I feel that um, there's a lot of people out there that you know may like the idea of writing, or when you describe it that way of writing takes me to another world, that may get them to pen and paper or to the, the keyboard. But there's a lot of insecurities attached with writing in terms of people understanding grammar or feeling like they don't have the ideas to share. How do you help yourself? How did you help yourself get over that? And how do you help others get over that kind of uh, paralysis in order to be able to write and use writing as a, uh, an opening to another world, as you said? I was very lucky to be introduced to editing very early. The first few books that I published when I was in my teens were edited at home with my aunt. She was a grammar teacher, but also a literature teacher. So she was in that um, situation where she could really look at the manuscript and see what it was lacking. Um, on the grammar side, but also because she was well-read, she could help me with developmental. So I started um, very early working on a manuscript using my editing skills, the, the editing skills that I was acquiring from my aunt. And that made me realize that there are two different crafts. Writing is one thing, editing is another. And what I usually recommend um, novice writers is to um, keep from worrying too much about the editing of a piece while they're working on it. I love free writing, just write without thinking about grammar, without thinking about whether you're choosing the right word, because all this can be taken care of later. Enjoy the process, enjoy the thoughts we can fix language, we can fix thinking a little later. Uh, that's comforting. I have a, a bit of a perfectionist mindset. And so that's one of my problems. I sit there and type. I don't, I don't know if I've ever really given myself true freedom to just free write. Uh, and knowing that, you know, separating the fact that editing can be done later versus right in the moment. Um, you come from Haiti, right? That's where you were born and grew up. Yes. Uh, as we were talking before the show, I've got a, uh, my family and friends have spent time down in Haiti. And, you know, I would say most of their time was doing service projects, helping after um, the earthquake. And so a, a lot of them uh, have described it and not the, the brightest colors, uh, for lack of a better term. And I've seen an interview with you where you just talk about how when you move from Haiti to the States, you used to save a lot of money and spend most of your money to travel back on maybe a monthly basis because of how much you loved it. Can you just describe to us what was it like growing up in Haiti and uh, how did that shape you to who you are today? Well, a lot of what you see in the news about Haiti is true, obviously, right? There's no uh, big attempt at portraying the country in a way that it isn't. Um, the thing though is that you need to be able to see the two sides of the coin. Yes, there's a lot of violence in Haiti. There's a lot of poverty in Haiti. 
but alongside all this, there is a lot of beauty. And I think for me, the, the most beautiful aspect of Haiti is her people. I mean, when I visit the country and I'm among my people, I, I feel different. There is this openness. People will tell you what they think. And people are also very welcoming. People are really funny there. It's like everything can be turned into a joke. And of course, sometimes that's not a, that's not a great thing when you're trying to really take some of our problems very seriously. But this openness, this propension to humor, this um, storytelling aspect to any conversation in Haiti is really striking. I remember um, my parents, um, they, they fought a lot. Um, they're, they're, there was seldom peace at home, but when they were not fighting, the kind of connection that they had was extraordinary. And it, it all revolved around the very nature of Haiti, that storytelling element where every day they would talk to each other and to us about their day. And it was an adventure, the most boring day at the office. My mom worked at a bank. My father worked at a university. The most boring plane day became uh, this epic journey. And it was all in the way that they spoke. And it wasn't just them. It was everyone in Haiti. We, we just love stories there. And there's so much beauty in that, being able to see something that that is so unmemorable, unmemorable and just turn it into something amazing that you can talk about. So that's one aspect. And of course, the, the setting itself, the, the, the trees and the, the fruits and the beaches, of course, all this is so beautiful and inspiring, the religion, the culture, the food. It's, it's a beautiful place. If you can, see beyond um, the poverty, right? Beyond the misery. It's, it's a beautiful place. How can that same tactic of making the mundane seem like a great adventure be used to positively influence the stories uh, we tell about ourselves? Well, before we talk about the stories we tell ourselves, maybe no. we should talk about the stories that we tell others, right? Because in truth, we have more conversations with others than with ourselves when it should be the other way around, right? So um, I remember writing a story and sharing it at a panel, um, at a workshop, and everyone was on the edge of their seat. And it was surprising to me because I was just talking about my life in Haiti. I was writing some scenes from when I lived in Haiti and I never realized until that day that people were seeing the world differently than I was. For me, violence was normal. For me, um, spending a week without electricity was normal and uh, seeing people reaction to those mundane facts was very surprising. And that's what got me thinking about how we tell stories to other people and how we tell stories to ourselves. And I've been a proponent of 
really being careful of the kind of conversation you entertain with yourself because you spend 24 hours with this person that you are. And if your dialogue is really focused on the negative, you just have a negative outlook on life. So this experience of talking about things that are that were just every day to me, not good, not bad, and seeing the reaction got me thinking about how different we can see an event that is the exact same event, right? You see it as, oh, poor girl living in a, in a country where there's misery. And I just saw it as me living my life and learning and having a good time while doing it. So when I talk to myself now, I'm very careful about how I approach a new situation. Am I just going to look at it for um, all the negative aspects of it? Or am I just going to put myself in the middle and recognize that where there's beauty, there's ugliness. Where there's pain, there's also healing. And I make sure that I shift my worldview when needed because it's there's salvation in this right in being able to see things for what they are but also what they could be and when you're thinking about those two things what things are and what they could be it's all about how you approach a situation so um i'm a survivor of childhood violence, right? I could just keep telling myself, oh, you, you're a victim. Poor you, you were a kid. Why did those things happen? They didn't have to happen. Or I can decide to tell myself, well, you can help other people going through this. You can take something that was very painful and make it and turn it into something that that is helpful to others. To, to that point, sorry to cut you off, but I, I feel like um, one of the, the terms through the pandemic and beyond I've, I've seen come up is that toxic positivity. Um, how, how do you balance, like if, what's your advice that you have for teachers who are trying to help change paradigms of students to make sure that we're, we're helping them change their paradigms to be positive but not in a way that's that's toxic. We're just says put on a happy face every day and pretend that the world doesn't exist. I don't hear you saying any of that. I'm just looking for advice of how do we make sure we don't do that as educators? I think the danger is whenever we talk about one, si one side of the coin without acknowledging that there's another side. Mm. So um, it's great to be positive, to look at how things work, uh, at the grace that we receive, but it would be ridiculous not to acknowledge at the same time that there is something dark um, in the mix. So when I talk about childhood violence, for instance, yes, I'm a survivor and it's beautiful when I describe myself as a lioness, as a, a warrior, right? All those beautiful words, but Yes, I was a kid and I went to trauma. I went to trauma that could have been avoided if my parents had had their act together. The, the darkness is there. It was unfair. It was painful. So um, toxic 
positivity is when you pretend that, well, it's all wonderful. It's, it's great. Look at her. She's an inspirational. It's like, and saying something like, oh, maybe it's a good thing all this happened. No, it's not. And um, you find people every day who are like, well, everything will be all right. No, not everything will be all right. Some things will be all right. If my mom is sick, uh, which she is right now, she's going through chemo, everything is not going to be all right. She might recover, but financially, everything is not going to be all right, for instance. Emotionally, she's always going to be afraid to get sick again because she has a history of being sick. So in being really positive, being um, positively positive, as opposed to um, the toxic positivity that some people sell, is to acknowledge that, yes, she she received grace because she's she overcame her cancer the same way she overcame um, her brain injury, but there 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 are ramifications to her survival and to her resilience. It's okay. looking at both sides and choosing to maybe value one side more than the other, okay. the positive side, obviously. You talk a little bit more uh, in one of your interviews about uh, that I read that was, you know, you, you kind of hinted to it there when you talk about your parents fighting. Um, but there was some turmoil in your life, I guess, growing up that shaped you to who you are, that possibly led you to writing the materials you write today and the books you write today. Can you give us a little bit of background of kind of, I'm curious uh, from your journey standpoint, what were some of those formative challenges or pain you faced and how did that lead to writing uh, for you? Well, growing up in Haiti is a challenge in itself because you have to be adaptable. To live in Haiti, you have to, even if you're going for just a week. Um, electricity is not always something you have, right? Um, transportation can be an issue. So you, you learn to be resourceful. If you cannot go somewhere, you have to learn how to use what you have in the house right, right now. If um, they're burning down the town because there's some kind of protest and you're staying home with the kids for days at a time, you need to learn how to entertain them. If you're a kid staying home during those days, you need to learn how to entertain yourself without electricity, without a working phone because um, phones stop working uh, unexpectedly in Haiti because everything is always so unstable. It is after all a third world country. We don't have the luxuries that um, people in other places have. So you learn to make do. And I think all this did teach me resilience. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever there's a hurricane in Florida where I live now, um, I'm ready to spend days without electricity because I'm used to that. I used to study um, with a candle or um, with a kerosene lamp, right? So that was definitely a challenge, having to do without what would be considered basic necessities in other places. But also, there was a lot of violence in Haiti. I grew up um, after the departure of Baby Doc. Um, it was 
one of the famous dictators of Haiti. We've had plenty. And after he left, the country was a term in turmoil because it was a country trying to find itself. So I had to understand, to learn to understand as a kid that things are not always safe. And it's, it's a different childhood when you always expect things to turn sour um, all of a sudden, right? Yep. So this definitely taught me to be, to pay more attention, to be more mindful of my environment. Am I, am I safe? And if things turn um, chaotic, what is my exit plan? And of course, in addition to um, that challenge that was, um, that was part of just what it meant to, to be in Haiti, there was also chaos at home because right. I come from a very violent environment there too. Um, I think that faith is a big part of what kept me going and also books. So between my Catholic faith growing up, I went to Catholic school all my life. Uh, my teachers were the nuns. Between that and reading all those books that helped me figure out who I was, who I wanted to be, and helped me see other worlds out there and pushed me to um, become a writer, that's how I was able to just find my center and be who I am today. So as you're growing up in this environment, I would say it's, it's not the norm for someone to live in that environment of stress and think, I'm going to read a ton. You know what? At 16, I think you were 16, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write so much that I'm going to start publishing books. And you became an author at 16. How did that happen? Well, I did have some privilege in Haiti. Yep. My, both my parents were middle class. Uh, which is a blessing because most of the population um, lives below the poverty line, right? Yep. So uh, my dad was a lawyer um, turned law teacher. My mom was an economist. So they, they were educated. Um, my dad has since passed and my mom is retired. Um, so I was privileged in that sense that I was surrounded with people who understood the value of education and who could make me see beyond just the immediate needs of a life in Haiti and do things like reading and watching, watching documentaries, just building my mind so that I could have a brighter future than what I was witnessing around me with um, the violence, um, the, the, the political coups and um, just um, the chaos of Haiti. So in that sense, I was privileged. Um, in Haiti in general, education is valued because people understand that it's rare to be able to get a solid education. The public schools in Haiti are not the best. Um, the teachers are not always um, trained properly. They don't always show up. A classroom might have a hundred kids. 
Um, some of the kids have to walk four hours to even get to school. So education is valued because it's that one thing that many people don't have access to. And when you do get access to it, it's even more valued because you understand that you're one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand getting a chance to actually own books and read books. Um, well, the public library is even a joke in Haiti. So most people have to buy books in order for them um, mm. to read those books. So um, I was well aware that I was in a position where reading was a luxury. So I read as much as I could and I enjoyed it. Nobody um, besides my sister um, with whom I would compete um, encouraged me to read. I didn't need encouragement. The books were there. Um, the very fact that my parents were reading um, was re were reading um, made it clear to me that I needed to um, read as well. So when, to, to again, to become an author, like I, I love reading. My wife loves reading. She's not an author. How do you become an author at like 16 and then get published, I think at 19, uh, how, how does that happen? So I started writing because I needed a way to express the kind of stress and just despair that I was in. Growing up in a place where everything is unstable and then also living in a home where everything is unstable it creates this kind of emptiness inside of you where you, you feel that you need to be filled by something and you're not sure what it is because you're so worried about what the next day might, might look like. You're not sure that you, you should attach yourself to anything because everything might be lost in the near future. You're, you're not sure who you are, who you're supposed to be. And as I was reading those books I mentioned, I started discovering that there is salvation in storytelling, discovering who other people are throughout the world and also discovering who you could be. Then when I started writing, I discovered that writing was even a bigger salvation because you control the narrative. I started with fiction and just being inspired by um, the people around me, by what I was going through, being able to finally talk about what was going on at home because we have a very strong um, culture of silence in Haiti. We'll speak our minds as soon as it's not something related to what's going on at home. We'll, we'll speak against the government, we'll speak again against um, inequalities, but we'll never speak about what's going on at home with mom and dad or um, about our, the affairs that we're having or um, just the betrayal that exists yep. within a family, right? So I wanted to be able to, to talk about what was going on at home and at first, it, it was just for myself. Then my sister was reading my stories and she encouraged me. And before I knew it, I was writing every day. 
so I would say that it was first a tool for, for, for healing be, before it became something that was just entertaining, before it became a teaching tool for me to inspire other people who might have gone through something like um, childhood violence or um, trauma due to political upheaval. It was just trying to justify my very existence. That's what writing was for me at first. We've talked a little bit about my background teaching in urban education and what you've seen. And so when we talk about the, uh, the violence and even the numbness that students can feel, I think you know, many students just by experiencing the pandemic felt the same inst instability, disruption, and even numbness uh, that we talked about uh, that can happen in um, some of the toughest uh, communities in our country. What advice do you have for uh, educators who are serving just all kids right now to help them unpack that trauma? Because, you know, I find my wife's uh, chief of staff of a school district here in St. Louis, and she comes home either from uh, an adult or a student often, and I hear, you know, uh, just the strangest behavior that just doesn't make sense. And I, I just can't think of anything else. It has to be still part of this uh, weight of the pandemic coming out of the pandemic mm -hmm. and the trauma that people have experienced. Well, dialogue is really important. And I mm -hmm. don't mean the superficial kind that happens just when we're discussing a story in class or we're, we're just kind of shouting out answers and sharing opinions. I'm talking about creating an environment where the kids feel that they really belong and that their opinion is valued. That's, that's really important because all the stress that they're experiencing because of the pandemic or um, the consequences of the pandemic, they need to express those. And as teachers, we do have a curriculum, we have a lesson plan that we need to follow, but as you know, it's pointless to try to get to the end of the lesson if the kids are not paying attention, if they are preoccupied by, by other things. So it's really important to make sure that they understand that they are allowed to express how they feel. Uh, maybe a check-in at the beginning of the lesson, or maybe connecting the lesson to what they might be going through. I was... Um, for the most part, a language arts teacher and a writing teacher. So of course it was easier for me to connect my curriculum to personal experiences, right? But even if you're doing math or science, there are ways to connect. Um, you, you're gonna have to be very crafty about it, but um, they're there, I mean, Art for sure is a good way to, to help kids um, express themselves. And you can always connect art with science and connect art with math. So I'm making sure that you do those two things, creating an environment where the kids feel that they belong. And that, that, that has to do, of course, with um, making sure that the rules are clear. From, from the beginning. I know that now we're in the middle of the school year, um, you might have to kind of reset 
the, the atmosphere in the room, but making sure that everybody has a voice, that kids are not allowed to put each other down, that you do um, use positive reinforcement, that you give everyone um, a voice, that you don't discriminate whether overtly or subconsciously against certain students, and then making sure that the curriculum is relevant, because that's another thing too, if they feel that there's a disconnect between what they're learning and the trauma that they're experiencing, it's easy to just give up. But if they see that this content is going to help them feel better or help them take control of their life, they understand why they are studying this chapter of math because it's going to help in the future, they might be more willing to really focus and, and get the work done. I'm curious, the thing, the writing that you have done that has hit me the hardest at this point is your Badass Black Girl series. And one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I, I took a couple of snaps or pictures of uh, some of the reviews that I've seen on it, which is I read and reading this book with my daughter and we love it. We are in a time of turmoil and a few pages daily has helped us cope. I'm not sure why more people haven't heard of this book, but I highly recommend it. Someone else said, although this book was designed for black teenagers, all black women can benefit from this book, but as a wealth of inspiration, guidance, celebration, I highly recommend this book. So can you tell us uh, what inspired you to go down this path and who do you think this series is for? Absolutely. When I was growing up in Haiti um, and reading so many books, I felt that I was not necessarily the target audience for the books. I mean, I was reading books about self-improvement and um, religion, and all those books were very helpful, but they did not take into consideration the fact that I was young, female, and Black, living in a country that didn't necessarily matter to the rest of the world. Yep. And I wanted to find myself on those pages, but they were not addressing some of the issues I was facing, like um, colorism or racism, or this idea that I'm less than. Mm. The idea that even when I open a biology book, um, the standard person being represented is definitely not black. I'm not even in a science book because everything I am is in comparison to something else. Okay. I don't have my own right to exist. And, um, you know, I was just reading and inferring what I should take, what I could apply to my own life. And dreaming of the day where I would open a book that would be just for me, a book that would directly address me. When I became a teacher years later in, in the United States and I started having some very difficult conversations with some of my black students, I realized that not much had changed, that they were still uh, having those questions that I had before, 20 years before. And I decided I need to write that book that I didn't have, that book I wish I had. And I didn't want to just focus on racism and the hard history of Black people because our history doesn't start with racism and 
A-N slavery. It doesn't end there either. I wanted to be able to inspire pride in addition to giving useful tools to just um, help my readers um, find the strength and the confidence they need to deal with everyday situations that require um, resilience. So I started writing Badass Black Girl then, um, mostly journaling, putting my thoughts on paper here and there. But it wasn't until um, a couple of years ago that the book really came together. In the book, I introduced some role models because, again, I want to focus on what's positive because it's not about poor me, poor me, history um, hasn't served me well. It's acknowledging the ramifications of history, but also celebrating all the great things that Black people have contributed to the world. So I included um, some biographies of people were worth discovering, Black people were worth discovering. I included activities that the readers can um, focus on every day. So hands-on activities, um, quotes, just everything they needed to survive the day. So it's, it's more like a toolkit than a book that you read in one sitting from beginning to end. And it's part educational, part self in himself, um, exploration, introspection. It's a well-rounded book for any Black girl who needs to be reminded that her skin is beautiful, that she has the talents um, needed for her to be successful. All those things that we don't hear often because um, if you hear the narrative about uh, who we are as Black people, where we've been and where we're going, it's scary. <laughs> um, there's no faith in um, what we are and what we've done. There, there's no hope if you listen to mainstream media. Yep. So I had to create that hope. As you and I have talked, uh, you know that I very much love your trailblazer sections of your book and uh, the power of role models. And then also uh, we've talked a little bit about the power of the narratives, right? The narratives you tell yourself and others. Um, when I, when I think about schools, right. And I was talking to my eight-year-old son in the car the other day and he'll create a narrative for himself. Oh, I'm not very good at this. So I'm not, I'm a math person. I'm not a reading person. He's eight. Right. Uh, my wife will say that sometimes around our house. I'm a reading person, not a math person. So these narratives don't ever leave. And so you could have a narrative of I'm a really good student. And that could be good or bad negatively, right? Because you could be ostracized by folks saying that in your community could be the the bad student, whatever, quote, unquote, bad student, uh, special ed student. Just, there's just so many narratives that I feel like get created through labels in schools and classrooms. I'm just curious, um, what can we do as educators to harness the power of uh, the narratives first and foremost. How do we how do we take back control of the narratives? 
I think that um, making sure that we use diverse materials would be a good way to start because, mm. I mean, the thing about labels is that sometimes they are true, but they don't tell the, the whole story. story, right? So I'm not saying that some labels are not important, but there needs to, to be some kind of balance in the way we present them. So mm. diversity in books, for sure is a good way to start because um, I can share my experience being Haitian and talking to other Haitians who have moved from Haiti to the US. A lot of them going through the school system were assumed to be uh, unintelligent, to have come, come off a boat yep. and to be dirty. And for many kids, actually the word dirty became synonym of Haitian. Um, the, the worst thing you could tell a kid is, oh, you're so Haitian, even if they were not, because in many schools in South Florida, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, it had become the, this, this way of insulting people, right? Calling them Haitian. And the only way for some for a kid to understand that it's not true is to see that it's not true, to be able to be introduced to people from Haiti who are intelligent, people from Haiti who did not come off a boat. And even if they did, they've been able to um, make a life for themselves, right? They're not reliant on other people for everything. So um, I've always made sure to introduce books with characters that are very diverse so that, yes, um, you might assume, and this one is a positive label, but a toxic label at the same time. Oh, all people from, from um, Japan are going to be smart in math. And I remember sharing a story about a kid who was struggling with math at a school precisely for that reason, because not only they had to figure out how to get the grade, but also how to hide their shame at not being good at math when everyone assumed that, oh, you're Asian, so you're gonna ace that test. It's challenging those preconceptions, those mixed conceptions that our kids have to show that, yeah, sometimes labels are helpful, but sometimes they are detrimental and we need to be able to see beyond them. Yeah. One of the things I always ask my son when he's critical of another student is I chat him pause and tell me what, before we go any further, tell me what genius you see in that student. What, what's something that's good that you've noticed that they do or what's something that's inspired you have been really cool. And it, at least they pause enough. Right. But, uh, still the narratives are so powerful. And I'm thinking like of an eight-year-old and even my five-year-old, I have a one-year-old too, has not there yet, but eight and five-year-olds and they come home from school, they live in their narratives and they think about other people's narratives. And so I appreciate your realism of you, you can't escape them. It's what do you do with them? Right. And how does that participate in the larger story? I think you've done a phenomenal job here and I, I won't, I won't go too in depth, but you know, let's just take one section as people are trying to understand what this is about. Uh, there's a, I don't know if we're called a chapter or what, but what are you doing well, right? And what I like about it is with each of these, 
you know, you have this letter, Dear Badass Black Girl, and you talk through, in this case, you're talking about, you know, helping someone find their talents and strengths. And so this letter is really there and it's very personal. And you're like, so I'm like captivated by the actual story, but also thinking about my students. And if I was, you know, Black Girl, I would be thinking about myself and how I fit into it. The interesting piece for me is the two things you do after you finish the letter, or it may be a continuation of the letter, uh, depending on how it shows up in the book. But you have this section and you have a few times throughout the book, it says, what are you up against? And in this case, uh, the, the, and then, I know, you know, your material well, so I'm sorry, I'm reading stuff that, you know, at the back of your hand, but what I like about it is you go from this letter of like, let's find your talents to here's what are you up against? Too many black girls had have to survive a childhood in neighborhoods where death, drugs, and violence surround us. The most dangerous cities in America, Oakland, Cleveland, Baltimore, Detroit, you can add St. Louis where I live have a large black populations in some of the most crime dense parts of this country. How can community organizations like nonprofits, churches, charities, and youth groups, after school programs, internal organizations, and others focus on furthering education, help reduce crime and five alternatives to violence? How can you get involved? So you go from this like um, this letter of inspiration to me as the reader, right? And then it's a challenge. How are you going to get involved? And then and I'll stop, I promise at this point, I think, I hope you, you have your, your trailblazers and you have throughout to your point, you, you find positive role models, but you have 10 badass trailblazers in this section in politics and law. And so you have people that they can go to as like examples that they can dive into to figure out if this is something that speaks to them, you can go do that. How did you like that, that format to me, it gets me, it gives me goosebumps thinking about the personal side to the challenge to here's the people you can dive into. How'd you get that format? I know that the last thing we want to hear from adults is this is what you should do <laughs> because they, they, I always felt that they didn't get me. They, they, they didn't walk in my shoes and now they're, they're old and they have a job, they're independent, and they're trying to tell me how to run my life when I feel that I have no agency. I'm a kid and I'm trying to figure out what my life is going to be. And I have no clue because the adults in my life don't have it together. So um, for me, when I started writing this book, it was important to remember that and um, put sections where the responsibility for the future um, becomes the readers as mm -hmm. opposed to me telling them what to do they had to figure some things out for themselves yep. so those sections were very important because i'm not giving the answer i'm saying those are things that you're going to be faced with uh, what is going to be your answer to those questions. So there's a lot of self um, exploration, a lot of introspection um, that is required when reading this book. Because the truth is, I don't have all the answers. I've been a Black person for 41 years now. I still don't have the answers. How, how do you live a happy life as a Black person? I know some things, but I don't know everything. How do you deal with microaggressions? How do you deal with this idea that you're not as beautiful, you're not as smart as a non-Black person? I know some things, but again, I don't know everything. And my answer 
um, might be very different from my mother's or my sister's or my cousin's. So there are many questions that have to be explored on your own. Yep. And I wanted the book to reflect that and also give those role models, uh, make sure that I do mention those trailblazers, those badass black women, because one thing that we need is a mentor. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine success, my own or someone else's, without having um, a map, without having someone to help you figure things out. And okay. sometimes that person is not present in your life in, in flesh and bones, right? You have to look for them in books and um, through history books sometimes, or maybe they're authors, maybe they're, they're um, someone running a YouTube channel. It was talking about um, how to deal with your issues, right? No matter who that person is, you need to be able to find them wherever they are. So I wanted to give some indication of that. Well, I personally, like as I consume it, I love the format. I could see how it could be powerful to uh, teenagers, especially uh, black women reading it at a young age. But I love books or any writing that makes the reader put a mirror in front of themselves versus point fingers or analyze others. And so I just feel like you do it really well and eloquently. And like you said, you leave it with the person to challenge. So I would encourage anybody who's an edu educator to dive into your content right now and then find the people in their lives that this would be perfectly fit for. Common thread that I'm hearing across all of your answers uh, is the importance of mentorship, the importance of community, um, the importance of uh, like creating a culture. You know, it's locating yourself inside a larger narrative of the culture um, that you belong to. And so I, this is a, as a, a big answer, a big question for me. When I think about what you're, what you're talking about is what does it mean to create a culture of belonging in a community where everyone has a spot, right? Where you can each have your narratives, but like we all belong here. Um, and it feels like we all belong. The school needs us. The, this, the classroom needs us. What does that, yeah, how, how do we, uh, what does that look like? How does it, how do we, how do we make that happen? You know, it's always been very strange to me when I meet people who are not really interested in seeing beyond themselves, right? Beyond their routine, beyond their way of doing things. It might be because I'm an immigrant, so I've been to different places. I lived in Haiti for a while, moved to the U.S. I was in Bolivia for um, nine months, and I've traveled. I've been lucky enough to travel that I'm naturally curious, curious about how other people live their lives, how they think about the way the world works. So whenever I meet someone who is adamant that their way is the only way. I'm, I'm just very taken aback, but it's a fact that some people think that the way they think is the only way, the way things are done at their house is the way it should be done everywhere. And that creates an obstacle to the belonging of other people, right? And sometimes it's you 
who, who, who is not finding a way to, you are not finding a way to belong. So it's, it's two ways. It's people not wanting you to belong because they don't think you belong. And also sometimes it's you feeling that you don't belong and that you will never belong. And I think that um, internal dialogue, introspection becomes very important in challenging the ways, the ways that you might see the world. Or why do you believe that someone doesn't belong? I think about all the fights that we have in the US, Republicans versus Democrats, uh, religious Actually, versus non-religious. <laughs> So, so yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of fighting, a lot of infighting too. So um, I think that journaling, and I, I won't say enough about journaling, is really important because you have to change yourself be before you can change other people. Sometimes it's so hopeless when you try to change someone else's opinion. It's The work has to start with you. Um, are you seeing things um, walking through someone else, with someone else's issues, walking in someone else's shoes? And if you're unable to change someone else's mind, are you still willing to love them as a fellow human being? And I think that's the answer. How much love are you willing to pour into the world? You should be willing to love everyone always, no matter what you're doing, you should be open to pouring some of your grace into the activity. So personally, I try whatever, what it is that I'm doing, whether I'm, I'm just going to the store and talking to people, whether I'm doing work and having meetings with my colleague, thinking about how can I make them feel better about the day. You said uh, before we started, I think you're releasing two new books coming up. I'm curious if you could tell us about those as people are getting to know you better and you're writing better. Absolutely. Um, I'm really excited about both books. They are coming out in June, June 14th. I remember because it's my sister's birthday. Um, so on June 14th, I have two new titles. The first one is Walk Boldly. This one is a toolkit for young Black men. As I was writing for girls and as I was presenting to um, girls at libraries, at schools, I started during the pandemic when the book came out. So at first it was virtually and then I started meeting groups in person. I kept getting the same question from parents and librarians and teachers, what about our boys? And the thing is, um, as an educator, I've had so many meaningful conversations with boys as well. I've um, tutored them and I have many, many black boys in my own life. Um, I'm an aunt, I'm not a parent, but I spend a lot of time with my nephews and nieces um, having meaningful conversations about what they go through. And I started feeling very guilty for having ne neglected um, the boys in my life and the ones that could definitely benefit from a book like Walk Boldly. So I met with my editor at Mango. Um, his name is Nate. And we devised a plan for the boys. 
and um, walk boldly. It's all about how to gain the confidence that you need to survive in a world that doesn't always like black boys and black men. And just like Badass Black Girl, it really focuses on what can be very hands-on, practical, practical tips and practical activities that really help with self-esteem and confidence. And the second book is the book of awesome Black women. I collaborated with Becca Anderson, uh, who wrote the book of um, awesome women. So um, this book focuses on all those great women, Black women who have made a difference in the world. And a lot of them have lived in obscurity because they were not necessarily talking about them in history books. Um, so whether we're talking about in people in science or in the arts or in literature, we cover many, many women who deserve recognition, who have made a difference in so many areas of life. Ooh, that's powerful. So where, where can people find this? Where can they get this? Uh, or where can they find you or make sure when June comes around, they're on top of this? Well, we will be wherever books are sold. Um, <laughs> I know that most people these days buy their books online or on Amazon yep. mostly, but I want to encourage everyone to visit their local bookstores. We do need to encourage our independent bookstores. And if they don't have one of the books, they will order it for you because it's it's easy for them to order those books. So um, anywhere books are sold, please ask for one of those titles. As for me, you can uh, contact me by visiting badassblackgirl.com. My contact information is on the website. I'm also on Instagram at badassblackgirlbooks. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook um, on the Happy OK. And also I have my own personal page. I am happy to have conversations there too. So yeah. um, I'm easily found. <laughs> That's awesome. I think you have the coolest... Uh... Twitter handle uh, I can think of. So uh, I'm a, a somewhat envious. Um, before I let you go, uh, we have a, a four questions that we ask everybody before they end the day with us. The first question is, what habits or disciplines do you have in your life that you think help you uh, on a daily basis or a weekly basis that help you make the, the best version of yourself? The first one um, can I, I'm sorry, I know you asked for one, but I'm going to give two because oh, you can hand in hand. give as many as you want. <laughs> so the first one is self-care. And I know that it's a word that has been overused lately, but I really mean the kind of self-care where I am learning to really love who I am as a person. I mean, I'm stuck with myself 24 seven. So I want to have a good time in my own company. So I'm really learning in my, about my talents, my faults, things that need to be improved, but also things that I'm doing well and giving myself some appreciation for the hard work that I do every day. So um, that's the first thing, um, being kind to myself, self-care. The second thing is I, do focus more on people these days. Um, by these days, I mean, um, since the pandemic started, it 
made me realize the power of connections. So I've been trying to be more mindful of all the relationships in my life. And I think that is, it has encouraged me to become a better person because I focus on what I can bring to other people to make their life a little bit sweeter. And um, this is a habit I don't want to, to lose. Every day I, when I look at my calendar, I look at who's going to be um, in the same room as, as me. And I try to figure out ways to just make their life a little better. Um, uh, yeah, so those are the two habits. That's awesome. You can have as many as you want. I didn't mean to uh, uh, pitch and hold you or box you in. All right. Next question, which I'm really interested in your answer on this. Uh, what books have you read recently or have you read, you know, throughout your life that are just monumental books that you think other people need to check out? Well, the book I most recently finished is The Thursday Murder Club. I'm not going to say that it's a life-changing book, but <laughs> is, it's definitely a good read. And when we talk about um, uh, taking a break from the world and just focusing on, on something that is entertaining because we do need to practice um, disconnecting sometimes and just be with ourselves and having a good time, um, that it's definitely a book I would recommend. It's a, it's a great read. I love um, mysteries and um, just a crime-based books. So uh, this one is definitely one I would recommend. I, I have been working on, on a list of books to recommend to young people. And that forced me to revisit the seven habits of highly effective teens. So this book, um, which I read many, many years ago for the first time, is definitely a book that changed my perspective. I had read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and the teen version is so refreshing because it does take into consideration the fact that we don't always have agency because we're kids. Um, as readers of this book. And I was really happy to read it um, at the start of college. I was, I was no longer a teen um, when I read it, but I was still young and trying to figure out what's the next step with my career. And I would encourage everyone um, who has a teen in their life, or if you're listening and you are a teen, it's definitely a book that... Um, help with changing your paradigm and just becoming a better person. I think I might've heard of this book before. So uh, <laughs> I just wanna make sure our listeners know that we did not set you up for that answer, but thank you uh, and we agree. Um, all right, uh, third question. When you are driving around or you know where you live around the Orlando area, when you're walking outside, um, driving outside uh, or doing work outside, what what's on your playlist? What type of music or artists or songs are on your playlist? So I have different playlists depending on what I'm doing, right? So um, the first one is a Christian playlist. Um, I grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school my entire life. At some point, I even considered becoming a nun myself. I was surrounded wow. with nuns, but um, <laughs> 
I my my um that wasn't the path for me, but I kept my faith for a long time and I recently reconnected with church, although it's not a Catholic church, it's a non-denominational church. I feel like I've come back home and I listen to a lot of Christian music. So that's one playlist. Um, another playlist is a country playlist. My husband and I, we both love, love country music. And for our reception, actually at, in, at our wedding, we only played um, country. And I have that playlist that I listen to occasionally. I also have a Caribbean playlist, mostly Haitian music, compa, but also a little bit of rap creole, creole rap. Um, but it includes songs from other countries too. Um, a lot of Zouk songs. Um, if you're not familiar with Zouk music, I encourage you to find out. And also a lot of um, Caribbean love songs, uh, what we simply call in Creole or French, um, musique antillaise. I love, love those. So I listen to them from time to time too. So I'm fascinated by everything. I think our playlists uh, are similar without the Caribbean music, I will say. Uh, I am very curious about the country music wedding, but we don't have time for that today, unfortunately. But uh, I think it's one of the more cute stories we've heard on this uh, podcast. Uh, last question, because I know our time's getting short. Uh, the guests that we have on like yourself are just uh, surrounded by great inspirational people and thoughts all the time. I'm just curious, is there a piece of advice that you have for leaders that are leading in today's world, um, whether they're going through hard times or whether it's something just inspirational that is feel good, uh, that's on your heart that you want to share with people right now? I remember reading um, a book it happens, it also happens to be a Franklin Covey book. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I, I swear that I'm not plugging, plugging it in because it's Franklin Covey, but I read Management Mess by Scott Miller. And I remember he, one advice that he gave was to figure out how much is enough. And it was that one piece of advice that was so simple, but so important. It made me reconsider everything that I do in my life. I, I was overworked for such a long time and I had to stop and ask how much is enough? What is it that I'm trying to accomplish? If I have a budget, for instance, how much money do I need and how much work do I need to put into it? And as a leader, when I think about that piece of advice, thinking about how much is enough, it has to do with the goals that you have, either personally or for the company or for your employees. How much is enough? You need to figure it out so that you, yeah, occasionally you'll go above and beyond, but you need to know what the baseline is yep. and also what the goal is in order for you not to... Um, become a place where everyone is overworked and unhappy. Well, I will tell Scott that I, I would not be sitting where I am right now without Scott Miller. So I will tell him that you gave him a shout out, but I also agree with your uh, take on that point, but also the book itself. I feel like knowing Scott for as long as I have anybody who can put out there and say, 
this is where I'm a mess. Now let's work through it. Um, I do think is really, really powerful. I will say, you know, it, it would not be um, in line with who you are, but I wouldn't be surprised if you mentioned your own books. Like I, I know that sounds probably crazy uh, in some ways, but um, I just, I mean, I hope you can sense it from me trying to share my heart with you. I, I just feel like the work you're doing is life-changing. Um, and I, I think you've identified a target of who, you know, your Badass Black Girl series could be for, or, you know, your upcoming uh, books with Walk Boldly or Awesome Black Women. But I just find any of us, one, by the way you write, and two, the content that you choose to go after, um, it just helps us build a stronger communities and it helps us see each other differently and love each other differently. Um, and I just appreciate your walking boldly on this path and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate you um, acknowledging my efforts to, to bring change to the world. And um, I mean, the world is so big. If I can bring a little bit of change in my world, in my community, I think it's really meaningful. And that's what I try to do. And I appreciate you supporting those efforts. Well, we will definitely have you back on as you start releasing more and more books. I appreciate you making time for us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so grateful to have you right. here. Thanks, MJ. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.